Welcome to the Revolution and Ideology channel where we are doing our series, our podcast series, Myth is America. Um, and uh, we've got another episode for all of you today. My name is Jared. I'm Nick. And, uh, and yeah, today we are going to talk about uh, the transatlantic slave trade. Specifically, again, the slave trade process. We'll have other future episodes where we actually talk about what plantation life was like and how horrible the planter society was. But that's not for today. Today we're going to focus mostly on, on the trade piece uh, that took place. And to kind of give you all an idea of how quickly this thing took off, um, the Atlantic slave trade just – and this is specific to what would become the United States. So again, we're not necessarily framing this for slave numbers regarding what, what happened in Jamaica or Brazil or Haiti, et cetera. We're kind of focusing here uh, – myth is America on the United States. But around 1700, there were only about 20,000 slaves in all of what would become the United States, so those British colonies. And by 1770, there were about 400,000. And how did that take off so quickly? We also know that number will rise even more, uh, topping out uh, just over 4 million at its peak. But regardless, we can see just in a 70-year window how quickly slave labor became uh, uh, profitable for uh, the construction of what would become the United States and how the United States would then exploit, derogate, subjugate, and oppress, again, hundreds of thousands to then millions of human beings, human lives that would be just tossed by the wayside in the construction of this country. So that's what we're going to kind of focus on today. How did we get to that point? What what really keyed off the transatlantic slave trade um, and with uh, an eye to the U.S. rule um, in that? Uh, we also are going to exhume, quote unquote, some of the oppressed or subjugated voices of that era that are often overlooked in popular retellings or K-12 through education. I mean, just like we've done in all the other podcasts, we're going to look at primary sources and, and and try and bring to light the overlooked parts of these stories. And in this specific episode, we feel like we're going to need a disclaimer because both Nick and myself are coming from a numerous layers of privilege in this regard, regarding uh, racial background, gender, etc. And we want to create the disclaimer that we are well aware of this privilege. And so when we are going to be reading um, from the sources of the past, we have to understand that there there is going to be some complexity, nuance there. Um, but we don't know of a better way to do this. Now, when we get to more modern uh, episodes where we might be talking about the 1960s, we can find, you know, literal recordings of people being able to speak for themselves. But when we're talking about the 16 and 1700s here, we're basically going to have to read. So it will be coming through our quote unquote privileged voices, personas, etc. And And we want our audience to be fully aware that we know that and we ourselves are aware of of that nature. So, um, anything to add to this disclaimer? Am I missing something here? Uh, no, I just think it's important for us to know. Yeah. I mean, this is two privileged white guys talking about the slave trade as much as we absolutely can letting the people speak for themselves, even though it will be through us by reading primary sources from the times as much as are available, which are limited, uh, at this point, like Jared says, when we get further on the timeline of the podcast, we'll have many more primary sources, uh, but for now, we're struggling through the era, uh, trying to recognize our privilege and be mindful of it and tell the story in a respectful way as much as possible. And to try and reconcile that, yes, and mindful is like the perfect word here. Um, and we we could not think of a better solution than for us to have like these re- – read these things. We don't want to like bring somebody else in or anybody like you know, tokenize anything. Like so we might as well just do this. As a historian, this is what I have to do. I have to go into the past, look for primary sources, and interpret them. So, so end of disclaimer there. I think I think you all get the point. Um, okay. Also, just like any other topic, but maybe particularly this one, you know, if the podcast and hopefully this is our dream someday was popular enough to where we could bring in guest speakers that were uh, more experts in any of these regions, we absolutely would do that. But at this point, that's not the case. So maybe we'll get there someday, but we're not there yet. Uh, funding would help, so check out Patreon, but Nick will do that in the outro. Um, anyway, okay, so disclaimer is done. We have to talk uh, now a little bit about credits. So oftentimes, one of the things we have to – well, what we want to do, and we haven't done as good a job perhaps in the other episodes. We kind of fill them in as we're going through them, but I want to just kind of start where we're getting our information uh, regarding this podcast. So some of the sources that we're looking at would be uh, Tommy Shelby – um, uh, the academic who wrote Ideology, Racism, and Critical Social Theory back in the summer of 2003. 
Uh, of course, uh, Howard Zinn and Anthony Arnov in their uh, uh, compilation work, Voices of a People's History of the United States. We're also going to be looking at the edited version of an autobiography of a people, uh, Three Centuries of Af uh, African American History, told by those who lived it. Uh, and that's edited by Herb Boyd with a, uh, a foreword by Gordon Park. Some of the figures regarding the slave trade itself come from Themes in West Africa's History, edited by Emmanuel Kwaku, and I'm going to struggle through this last name, Akiampong? Akiampong? I don't want to butcher it anymore, so I'm going to I'm gonna let you just kind of look that up if you so choose on your own. Yeah, we'll link all these in the show notes so you guys can look up these sources uh, on your own. So, um, and there may be another source or two that I'm throwing in, uh, the Stono Rebellion, for example, their ver the version of it will come from blackpast.org, which is an amazing resource for a lot of this subjugated history here of, of, uh, oppressed peoples. So again, we're going through different sources, but we want to kind of preface the episode by announcing which ones we're going to be looking at and where we come up with some of these figures or ideas from. Okay. So, um, Let's kick this let's kick this thing off by first debunking the myth that I hear constantly whether it's in the public sphere or in the in my classrooms especially when I'm doing uh this part of US history um the early part oftentimes we hear that uh, uh slavery already existed in Africa before the Europeans show up before they kick off this transatlantic slave trade and in a way, these rebuttals from usually uncomfortable students of privilege when they are learning about the horrors of what actually happened um, to uh, 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 trans, uh, during the transatlantic slave trade. Um, the thing we, I think we're overlooking here is that the labor systems and the servitude systems in the pre-modern era that we're attaching this word slavery to don't necessarily fully align to what took place after the transatlantic slave trade in terms of practice, in terms of ideals, um, or to what we would eventually see in antebellum America. Like there is a, there's a huge disconnect both ideally and materially. And the reason I'm going to say this is because there was for servitude in Africa before the Europeans showed up. There was also forced servitude in Europe. There was also forced servitude in Asia. There were numerous different ancient societies, whether they were tribes, kingdoms, or full-blown empires like Rome or the various Chinese dynasties that used various systems of labor. But I want to stress here that if you were an individual in any of these societies going back to the ancient world through the pre-modern world, the most popular ways a individual might find themselves, and again, this is global, in a uh, relationship before servitude would be, uh, first and foremost, if they found themselves in debt. So debt slavery was uh, a, a thing. You would find yourself in debt to people that are above you on the various socioeconomic hierarchy. We don't necessarily support that, but that was a way that you would, whether we're talking ancient Athens, the Roman Empire, or West African tribes, one way you might find yourself in a position of forced servitude. The reason we're emphasizing this here is that once that debt was paid back, the most often response of the debt uh, of the, the the debt e would be to then release that person from their servitude contract. What do you think of that? Why do we? I mean, Nick, what are your thoughts as the sociologist here who, who knows quite a lot about like economic structures as well? This whole idea of debt servitude in the ancient world, again, whether we're talking about the Greeks or the Chinese dynasties or the Romans, or again, to use the example that a lot of students cite in rebutting the horrors of the slave trade that in African, African kingdoms, what do you think the role of debt slavery plays in there or why we even use the term slavery when maybe even a better term is indentured servitude? I mean, we already talked about this in the other episode when we were talking about, God, I don't even know what we were talking about, but when we were discussing the fact that the first people that were coming to the colonies were indentured servants. Even in the beginning, the Africans coming were also indentured servants. And yeah, we talked about it in the Invention of Whiteness episode. I touched on it where like lifetime slavery wasn't a thing even in the beginning of the colonies like that was unheard of they had never really it wasn't part of their society to enslave someone for life and i think like you just mentioned it has everything to do with the economic system there wasn't an economic system that existed that would 
make it beneficial to enslave someone for life, really. It was always either a result of debt, like you said, or being captured as a result of being defeated in war. Typically, those are the two types we see throughout human history. So to put it bluntly, one of the reasons that the uh, uh, American versions of slavery, and when I say American in this case, I'm actually talking both North and South America, these American versions of slavery became so much more harsh is because the economies of these pre colonial societies were not based on slave labor. There are almost no examples where the entire economy is built up by slave labor. I say almost no examples. Some of my ancient historians out there will note that Sparta would have been an exemption where the helots were definitely the basis of the economy uh, infrastructure in Sparta. But anyway, to keep moving, Nick already kind of gave away the next way you might find yourself in some sort of indentured servitude in Africa or, again, any of the other concurrent ancient societies around the world in Europe and Asia, etc. And that was being a prisoner of war. You would be, of course, brought in by whoever your quote-unquote conqueror was, and you would be put into a position, depending on the values and ideals of that society, to, again, work for the benefit of that society. Again, perhaps against your will. We're not saying that wasn't the case. But oftentimes you were not, again, treated the way the slaves were on the transatlantic slave trade. You were serving that society. Oftentimes, in, in even certain examples, you'd be adopted into the society. And if you performed well, i.e. in a meritocracy, even as a, a POW, you could, you could actually work your way up to a certain amount of autonomy, economic freedom. You could marry. You could have children. You could even perhaps inherit land. So again, those are things that were never on the table for the people that suffered through the transatlantic slave trade and then the antebellum American slavery here. Also, like before the slave trade, in many of those ancient examples of what let's call it indentured servitude, or even if you were captured as a POW, very infrequently would be people be forcibly removed from their homeland. You might be a slave or an indentured servant, but you would still be close to where you lived in theory, right? And oftentimes you might find yourself way uh, way back home via, again, in POW terms, an exchange of prisoners of war with the other society. Once, of course, peace accords – I'm using a modern term there, peace accords. Once treaties are, are, are formed between these two various groups or they decide to make an exchange of other – again, people were exchanged. I'm not saying they weren't. People were exchanged. But again, the reasons there for uh, – that – the, excuse me, let me rewind. The reasons that they were exchanged, both material and ideally, were very different than what happened after the Portuguese roll up, who we're about to get to, uh, on the West African coast. Yeah, like you said, there's very few examples of human beings being traded for money, like being bought and sold. This didn't happen. Right. Even the ones that went east. And, and, and again, some historians will note that there was a slave trade before the Europeans showed up with the various Islamic empires of North Africa, uh, the Middle East, and even, of course, uh, Southeast Asia. And off we find African servants in uh, as far remote places as dynastic China. So the people were exchanged, but reciprocally, there were also people from Muslim empires that ended up in African kingdoms serving the African kings. The greatest example would be the fact that Mansa Musa, one of the greatest African kings of, of, of the great empire of Mali, had Muslim, in this case Arab, scholars serving him. So again, there was this kind of exchange, and none of it was actually racially based, which we'll get to a little bit later in the episode, but we'll come back to that. Uh, the Roman Empire is a great example. It did not matter what color you were. If you ended up being a POW to Rome, there's a good chance you're going to have to work off uh, uh, your your sentence, uh, whatever it might be. So the, the racial aspect is also a little bit different. Okay, the final reason you might find yourself in some sort of indentured servitude in, in uh, any of the African kingdoms or tribes or empires, and I'm using that term uh, intentionally because it's much more nuanced than we like to think um, the way people socially organized uh, throughout the continent. But if you find your, the other way you might find yourself in indentured servitude is, is committing a crime. That would be how you um, serve out your repayment to society is through this servitude. Um, and depending upon what the crime may or may not be, you either serve it towards like the society as a whole, if it's a, some sort of crime against like all of your society, or if you directly accosted a family, an individual or a family, you then work off your sentence for them through again, indentured servitude. But those are the three ways you might find yourself in a poor, in a uh, role of subservience in West Africa, again, alongside the rest of the freaking world was debt, prisoner of war, crime. So anything else you want to add to that? Because again, I, I feel like we need to debunk this, this, this myth 
that, oh my God, they were already enslaving each other. So what Europe did or what the Europeans that show up did was not all that bad. Mm -hmm. Anything else you want to add to that? I mean, it's kind of ridiculous that we even like try to qualify it like that. I don't know why, but yeah, no, I use the same, I tell the same thing in my intro classes and stuff when we're talking about American slavery and how it was so different than other types of slavery that had existed throughout history because my students say the same thing, right? Well, slavery existed historically, so the U.S. weren't really doing anything unique. That's not the case. Right. And and other societies, like I said, knew better. One of my favorite, we're uh, going to bring in a little Iranian pr- pride here from my uh, genetic background. Uh, but yeah, I mean, slavery was a topic even in the ancient world. The Persian Empire, under the leadership of Cyrus the Great, actually tried to abolish slavery back in the 6th century BCE. 6th century BCE. Like, I mean, you know, this is a conversation people have been having for a very long time. So um, so it's important for us to kind of acknowledge and recognize that. The other thing is the linguistics of it. One of the other things that we tend to do here in the modern United States um, and Great Britain, because I'm going to pick specifically on the English language here, uh, I guess I could throw in Canada and Australia, New Zealand, and all these other places as well that also speak more or less our version of English, um, is we use this word slavery to describe those different forms and manifestations of servitude of the past. And that in and of itself is, again, that linguistically, that is problematic. Um, if we look at the Latin word for what they called most of their servants, servus, right, S-E-R-V-U-S, that actually is the root word not for slavery, but for servant. Nick can cue us in on one of the root words for Roman slavery. What was it? Famulus. Okay. Which is where we get the word family. Interesting. Interesting. That deserves an entire episode, and we'll probably fill that in when we get to some more ideological stuff. But anyway, but that would be an example. Okay? Anyway. But we would then assume that that version of slavery, by merely using this word slavery and then applying it to all the different forms of past servitude in these other languages, immediately brings to mind the same type of slavery that we ended up having here in the United States. And we do that for a couple of reasons. And I would argue the first reason is we don't want to look as bad. We want to make it look that that everybody's just been doing this. And I mean, I guess you've already kind of commented on that. But the, the language piece is actually wildly important here. So, okay. Pre-modern slavery, we're kind of debunking that myth here a little bit. As far as the actual slave trade itself, it really kicks off, and I kind of talked about this in our very first like real episode, uh, the one on Columbus, where I focus mostly on Spain. Well, now I'm going to go with their Iberian uh, uh, neighbors on this one, the Portuguese. The Portuguese, I, t- I told uh, you all that they kind of beat Spain to the exploratory uh, punch, so to speak, by going south into Africa during the Reconquista and navigating around the West African coast, eventually coming uh, around the Cape of Good Hope and ending up in India. Uh, who was that? Vasco da Gama. Anyway, along the way, they began to set up trade forts along the coast of West Africa. And at first, the exchange is just an exchange of new, novel, maybe status-laden things. Uh, maybe weapons in weapons and alcohol into uh, West African societies and perhaps um, other goods, ivory or various forms of food, yams, making their way back to the Portuguese ships. But then, of course, a normal, regular, and there is no way to, I guess, say normal, regular exchange of human beings. That's never normal or regular, I guess. But regardless, an exchange of human beings, not necessarily in the same ilk that it would become. But very quickly, the Portuguese realized that they could take advantage of this because the people that many of these West African kingdoms were giving them, um, they were giving them because the West African kingdoms assumed that they would have the same type of role in the Portuguese society. They, they made this very, they made this ideological connection assuming that the Portuguese operated under the same auspices, especially economically, that they did, that perhaps these people would only serve uh, a short amount of time, or maybe even in certain cases they saw these people that they were exchanging as others because maybe they were criminals or POWs, and they didn't have necessarily this direct connection to them. At any rate, people do end up on Portuguese boats. That's what we have to to, to really talk about here. And many of those people that ended up on Portuguese boats would find their way to new territories where the Portuguese ended up starting to find resources that they thought could they could that they thought they could exploit. One of those places uh, uh, that is important are the Cape Verde Islands, uh, and then Spain just a little bit more to the north on the Canary Islands. Basically, they colonize these islands first. They're islands off the coast of West Africa, so naturally that's where they would get to first long before they're making it to the, uh, the Americas. They colonize these islands, and they begin to realize that there's a resource there 
there's multiple resources, but the resource I want to focus on there that could be quite profitable. And for them, that resource ends up being sugar. And once they begin to discover that sugar can be profitable once it is brought back to Iberia and then sold throughout Europe, um, they decide, well, what is one of the easiest ways that we can generate profit? Well, these people that we have been exchanging, we can now put them to work and technically we do not have to compensate them. We can just put them on these plantations. We can systematize the production of this sugar on these islands and guarantee future profits and, I, I again, without... I mean, basically become an agricultural power that is selling this commodity. So we become um, profitable first and foremost because it is a commodity. And I want Nick to talk about why commodities are so much more profitable than if they were just selling things that we like really need, the food, the water, the... Why do you think that is? And we talked about it a little bit with tobacco in Jamestown already, so it might be a little repetitive, but let's do a refresher for those of us that have not uh, listened to the Jamestown episode. Two aspects of this that I think are important. The first is when we're talking about cash crops, you can't live off them. So that gives that has all kinds of economic implications. Like we talked about, I think we talked about it when we talked about tobacco. The second you start growing tobacco, instead of something that you can actually eat, then that becomes a massive problem for the supporting of populations. Um, but what I think you're going after is for a commodity like sugar, it's much, much different than trading in commodities because when you're trading in commodities, you either have to give, you have to exchange something for something else of equal value in theory, right? If we're having free trade. When we're talking about a commodity, it's basically creating something from nothing and then selling that. So the profit is much, much, much greater than just traditional trading and even much more so if you're using slaves to create that commodity. And you create forced dependency of the colony and thus those who serve the colony, i.e. the slaves via this relationship because they then become dependent upon the people to feed them. Because, I mean, technically, I guess, yeah, you can eat sugar, not like you can eat tobacco. But regardless, you can't sustain yourself on sugar. It is a luxury item, right? And it becomes a status symbol throughout Europe to begin sweetening your food, flavoring your food with sugar rather than honey, which is what many Europeans used prior prior to this, uh, the transatlantic slave trade. Sugar becomes a major commodity. It will play a huge role in U.S. history going forward, even though we're not to the United States yet. Sugar becomes very important in the American South. It will also be a reason for imperial wars, uh, such as the Spanish-American War, which we'll get to way later on down the line. So sugar ends up being, uh, again, this crucial cash crop to the development of American agribusiness. So, and we see it beginning even before the United States is a thing, like before the, even people have been here, the Portuguese kind of set us on this, this path. It's kind of funny when you think about it, like the global historical impact that sugar has had resulting in millions of lives and like you said imperial efforts etc considering that like we don't actually need it yeah like yeah. you don't need raw cane sugar to live you could go your entire life without ever consuming that and be just fine maybe even better depending yeah, i guess probably. like probably even to better back to the natural sugars cue the dietitian here um anyway okay so uh back to where we're supposed to be going so the the, the trade itself really kicks off after these quote-unquote experimental plantations on the various islands. Again, Cape Verde for the Portuguese, later on Canary Islands for the Spanish. And then they feel like they can then transplant this type of economy to the islands uh, of the Caribbean and eventually onto mainland Latin America. Um, and so with them, they bring their methodology. We talked already about encomienda systems and how that affected like mining. Well, they also operated for, again, agriculture. Uh, Cuba would be an easy example that we'll be coming to way later on down the line in our, our series here, uh, especially regarding U.S. and Cuba. Uh, Cuba's a relationship, but Cuba became like more or less a sugar plantation for uh, the Spanish Empire. So again, that's an example. Okay. Um, as far as the actual transportation of... Uh, of really, again, these human beings, uh, 95% of the slaves arriving to uh, what would become the United States, so not necessarily um, Latin America in this case, as we want to come back and, and, and center our podcast more on, on U.S. history here, would take the Middle Passage. So the Middle Passage is important. And I want to stress this. When, when, when you go out, if you do choose to go out and look up some of these figures, it must be noted, um, United States kind of gets off scot-free regarding cultivation, quote-unquote. I would not call it cultivation. I would call it like basically kidnapping, um, forced kidnapping of human beings from their, their home. But the United States gets kind of um, 
doesn't get blamed as hard for the transatlantic slave trade because many of these slaves that end up in the United States are not actually taken from Africa directly by the United States. They're taken by other European traders, whether it be the Spanish, the Portuguese, the British, the French, etc. So when you see how many slaves came and took this passage directly from Africa to what would become the United States, the number's not actually that high and would never have reached 4 million. But here's the problem. What many of these studies and maps forget is that the slaves may not have come directly from Africa. They come to the Caribbean, of which that's where the United States is picking up these African slaves. So again, it seems like a very simple thing that we're, we're talking about here, but it's really not because I've had people cite this to me. The United States only took X amount of slaves directly from Africa. Yeah, but they took thousands, hundreds of thousands of more from the Caribbean. So it's still, it's still, perpetuating the transatlantic slave trade, even though U.S. slave traders themselves are only going to the Caribbean and not all the way to Africa. It's still part of the economic system. Why do you think we, well, I don't even know, it's kind of a rhetorical question, but like, I mean, is this part of just the mental gymnastics we have to perform with ourselves when we look at these studies? Oh, the United States only took X amount of slaves directly from Africa, but they took all these others from the Caribbean or no, yeah, it's just justification. I mean, obviously. I mean, it is. It's Somehow in our mind, we... Wrap. It's less bad that they were already taken from Africa yeah. and we're picking them up and in Ameri the Caribbean and, instead. Yeah, exactly. We're not the ones actually taking them from the Africa. The colonists didn't take them directly. They were already taken. So somehow that justifies it, I guess. It's absurd, but yeah. Yeah, and that's one of those things that's important. As far as the actual passage itself... There is so much incongruency on studies. I've seen as low as 20%. I've seen as high as 50%. And that 20% and 50% number I'm talking about is how many uh, human beings, I want to stress this, died just on the passage itself. So not even getting to uh, the Americas dying along the way. And a lot often it is because they're just cramming these things as full as they can of human beings. And there's a dehumanization process here that we're not quite ready to talk about, but basically they're seeing these individual humans as cargo, as a commodity in and of themselves. And we will eventually develop an ideology that rationalizes us. We're not quite there yet, but Nick's going to give that to us here in a few minutes. Um, it does. Again, we're, we're talking about all of the cognitive dissonance that needs to be created for individuals to partake in such an exploitative, disgusting practice. Um, and again, along the way, the loss of life is obscene. And like I said, there's a wide – even if we look at the lower number, let's pretend it is only one out of five of these human beings that is being, that is being uh, uh, taken on these trips and, and not even making the trip. They're, they're dying. They're dying along the way. Like I mean that just says so much about what we were willing to sacrifice in the name of profits. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so – as the slave trade began to pick up further and further, um, the Portuguese, the Spanish, and eventually, like I said, the French, the British, and other people will get involved along the West African coast and seek to create uh, these um, colonial mercantilist relationships with these African kings. And one of the things that we have to talk about here is at some point, the various African kings had to realize what was going on. Um and they were still willingly partaking in it in, in and of themselves. And this is one of the more, again, one of the more debated discussions. One, if the original African kings could rationalize the exchange of POWs or criminals, they usually didn't exchange debtors because the debtors were working for them to, to pay off their debt. But if they could ex rationalize the exchange of POWs or criminals to these uh, uh, white Europeans um, for other goods because they didn't know what the Europeans were actually going to do with them, at some point throughout the process, they had to start realizing what was taking place because they kept coming back for more. Like a, a few was never enough. We know how we are in Western civilization. We are insatiable. We cannot stop consuming um, and that includes, again, in this case, human beings. In fact, um, one of the other sources we, we like to reference on this is a TED-Ed video that, that goes over the story of uh, – at some point, some Africans thought white people were cannibals because they were just consuming so many human beings and kept coming back for more. Um, that's Actually, one time, interestingly, I just thought of this. I did research into like zombie theories and yep. ideology and stuff and – one of the, I mean, the, the origin of the zombie story is traced back to the slave trade, specifically in the Caribbean. And they thought that the, some kind of like magic must have been going on because they could not understand why people would go into servitude like this and continue to work. 
they had like it was one of the only explanations. It's just interesting to think about. Yeah, Haiti was there was a lot of 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 uh, exploration of that on in in the colony of Haiti. Well, yeah. Saint Domingue or whatever. Yeah, yeah that's, exactly, that's where the yeah. zombie story comes from. Haiti yet? But yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. So as we kind of continue on this 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 line of thinking, this insatiable uh, nature of the European um, slave traders here again, kind of it it, it created. It had to create some sort of heightened awareness against these African kings or for these African kings, excuse me. But the question remains, why would they then willingly continue to partake as probably more and more of these revelations of what was actually happening to these human beings um, really began? Well, that's where we get this idea of forced dependency. They become then economically attached to the same type of growth materially and ideology ideally as the Europeans. So in this case, things like alcohol, we already know it's addictive properties, but here weapons, once you begin to realize you can profit in other ways from these Europeans by exchanging human beings, this will give you more reasons to go to war to collect more POWs. You don't want to send your own people, but you're okay. Maybe perhaps sending the rival kingdoms people. You'll want to go to war. Well, in turn, that kingdom will want to defend itself and perhaps get your POWs. And to do so, they will then become dependent upon European weaponry, and those weapons are what would become exchanged for these humans. So it's almost like this vicious cycle that takes place. Like, we need more of these things, so we need to go collect more people from this rival kingdom. Well, we need more weapons to get the people, so we'll get more people, we'll get more weapons, and of course the other king, the other kingdoms are thinking the same thing, and now you have this warfare based just on this European economic practice that infiltrates. So it's not even just the subjugation of the human beings along the West African coast and then eventually uh, further and further inland in Africa. It is the ideology and then the practice of that ideology that also leads to subjugation on the continent. And we already know how that goes. Eventually the dependency uh, will actually create some of the problems we see to this very day on the entire continent. Again, once the slave trade actually stops, that dependency actually still existed. Even when the Europeans outlaw the slave trade, the dependency still existed. Europe uses that dependency to, yes, they can pat themselves on the back for stopping the slave trade, but then they just go to Africa and colonize it, right? Every modern nation state in Africa was colonized by by another European power and exploited for its resources there. They could actually create slavery on the continent, but feel less bad about it because they're not transporting them away from their home. Q, again, one of my favorite examples, the Belgians in the Congo and the 10 million people they managed to kill there. Again, Belgium, podunk waffle making Belgium managed to, of course, kill 10 million people uh, at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. Um, so many Belgian listeners. We have zero Belgian listeners. Get back to making waffles or whatever it is that, that that's going on there. Uh, whatever, looking at diamonds in Antwerp or I don't know. What else do they do there? They make candies and chocolates? Whatever. They're great people. I'm sorry, Belgium. Okay. Back to the story, though. Let's go back in time. Okay, so that's one of the reasons, this forced economic dependency that would be created by the European ideals and ways of doing things that would make their way um, along the West African coast. So this is where the exchange uh, began to take place. Okay, what does the actual journey look like? And this is now where we're going to get serious because it's very important. I, again, and I have a little bit of heartburn about trying to read from people that are experiencing oppression that I would never, that I that I have the privilege to never even have to face in terms of my my status, my privilege, my race, etc. But but we have to deliver this information. Um, so we're going to read directly and from Autobiography of a People and this compilation of primary sources of individuals that uh, that that faced the horrors of what it was like uh, to be on the transatlantic slave trade. So. Our first source is going to be James Albert, and it comes uh, uh, from a narrative of the most remarkable particulars in the life of James Albert, an African prince written by himself. I am not going to read every piece because it's it's super long, but I am going to read some highlights um, that I think are, are really relevant to what we're supposed to be – well, what we really hope to engage here. Okay, so – Uh, Albert says, about this time there came a merchant from the Gold Coast, the third city in Guinea. He traded with the inhabitants of our country in ivory. 
He took great notice of my unhappy situation and inquired into the cause. He expressed vast concern for me and said, if my parents would part with me for a little while and let me take and, and let him take me home with him, it would be of more service to me than anything they could do for me. He told me that if I would go with him, I should see houses with wings to them, walk upon the water, and should also see the white folks, and that he had many sons of my age, which would be my companions. And he added to all this that he would bring me safe back again soon. I was highly pleased with the account of this strange place and was very desirous of going what do you think of that little passage here about what james albert an african prince was being told yeah i mean obviously it's nonsense it's just straight up just filling his head with fantasies he goes on to say a few days after a dutch ship came into my harbor and they carried me on board in hopes that the captain would purchase me as they went i heard them agree that if they could not sell me then they would throw me overboard I was in extreme agonies when I heard this, and as soon as I ever saw the Dutch captain, I ran to him and put my arms around him and said, Father, save me. That is huge, right? Again, this is an African prince who, after experiencing, eventually agreeing to this this, this exchange, realizes that his life is in danger, and he turns to the Dutch captain, a white man, and says, Father, save me. What we're seeing here is not just, again, like attacks on human beings from a strictly, again, humanitarian or material point of view. This is psychological as well. This is psychological subjugation. Mm -hmm. A little bit further on, he says, I was now washed and clothed in the Dutch or English manner. My master grew fond of me and I loved him exceedingly. I watched every look, was always ready when he wanted me and endeavored to convince him by every action, that my only pleasure was to serve him well. I was never so surprised in my whole life as when I saw the book talk to my master. This book he's talking about is the Bible for our listeners out there. For I thought it did. As I observed him to look upon it and move his lips, I wished it would do so to me. As soon as my master had done reading, I followed him to the place where he put the book, being mightily delighted with it. And when nobody saw me, I opened it and put my ear down close upon it in great hope, great hope that it would say something to me but was very sorry and greatly disappointed when I found it, would not speak. This thought immediately presented itself to me, that everybody and everything that despised me was because I was black. This is in 1720. I never gave our, our listeners the date. This is 1720, this account. I want to stop. I want your thoughts on this, this idea of this Bible and the role this book had played. And what we're assuming here is he doesn't go through this, but the amount of social conditioning using this book, this Bible, and the ideology, Christianity behind it. How does this lead to subjugation? Well, it's also important to note that, you know, it was a highly edited version of the Bible that they were being taught, right? They intentionally, in fact, you can research slave Bibles. They made copies of the Bible that they gave to the slaves and taught the religion to the slaves that had every part of liberation taken out of it. So the Exodus, etc., all of that was taken out because they didn't want the slaves to get any ideas. And yeah, I mean, it's used just like you said, it's social conditioning and subjugation and dehumanization. Yeah. But the role of religion, a religion that is supposed to be, again, based on liberation, if we look at like New Testament synoptic gospel readings, like, I mean, it, it, how can it be used? How can somebody that, 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 that swears by this faith of turning other cheeks and doing unto others and such and such and such can then take it and manipulate it in this way? To, in yeah. this case, oppress human beings. They have to do such a perversion of the text to use that to justify slavery that it's just ridiculous. It seems to happen over and over again in these religions, though, Although doesn't there, it? Although it is interesting, right? The cases they use, like the curse of Ham and like things like that, which I think you're going to get to later, like the, the, they pick and choose the passages that they think can justify things like this, right? Right. Uh, as we go a little further into Albert's passage here, we find out that he eventually is going to be um, – he's going to swear and he's going to try and access the book and he is going to be reprimanded for that. And and he is uh, reprimanded by the, the lady of the manor. She says – or he says, Madame says, I, you must not say so, must not swear in this case. Why, says she – and this is her answer – because there is a black man called the devil that lives in hell. And he will put you in the fire and burn you. And I shall be very sorry for that. So what we're doing here is we're crafting a narrative where the most evil 
you know, the, 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 the diametrical paradigm of good and evil, well, evil in this case is painted as what? Yeah, black, just like the slaves, right? It's just, it's, it's appalling. It's appalling. Um, At any rate, we also have some revelations in Albert's uh, readings. One of the things that actually, uh, for him, ends on a high note, I suppose. I'm trying, I mean, if we want to try and silver lining this, at least in this part of the passage, is he reflects back on his childhood, um, back in Africa, and he basically insinuates that he had always thought there was something bigger and that his own society, uh, for whatever reason, deterred him from thinking that. Anyway, once he he comes to know the white man's Christian God, he does say, I was only glad that I had been told there was a God because I had always thought so. So basically what he's saying is the premonitions he thought he had as a child, perhaps even socialized into him by his master, are then justified and rationalized through the revelations given to him, What and as Nick said, limited and edited revelations, of the Bible that put him into servitude, that it is his job to serve, serve the master. And by serving the master, he'll be serving God. And in, and he's, he says, he's glad. What do you think of that? It just, I think in my opinion, just demonstrates indoctrination. I mean, that's what we're seeing here. And this is how far again, the European culture and eventually later the American culture was willing to go to wholly again, not just control the bodies of these of these individuals, but to attempt to control minds. And I mean, this is psychological warfare. And he's brought over as a child, so it's a lifetime of conditioning. You know. Yeah, a little bit more famous um, than 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 Albert's account, and it is it is pretty famous. Is Aluda uh, Equianau's uh, 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 account. Um, let me try that again, listeners. Aluda's Equinau's account. And this comes from the interesting narrative of the life of Aluda Equinau or uh, Gustavus Vasa, the African, written by himself. And again, it's not the whole thing. We're going to be looking at ex- excerpts here. Um, anyway, he is talking about his life going from Africa to Virginia. And he says he was born back in the year 1745. Um, he goes through some interesting accounts of who his family was. And what, what I love about Equiano's account is that we get a little taste of what his African life was like before he ends up in, 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 enslaved. Um, and one of those things he kind of touches upon here is, uh, basically he says, we are, and I'm skipping through some of this. We are almost a nation of dancers, musicians, and poets. Every great event, such as a triumphant return for battle or other cause of public rejoicing, is celebrated in public dances, which are accompanied with songs and music suited to the occasion. He goes on to say, and again, I'm, I'm kind of skipping through some of this. As our manners are simple, our luxuries are few. The dress of both sexes is nearly the same. Um He's basically trying to paint for the reader what life was like in Africa and not even necessarily like over-romanticizing it. In some of these passages, he talks about some about crime and punishment. Uh, he talks about adultery. Uh, he even says adultery was sometimes punished by slavery or death. So in fact, he actually – I mean he's not just romanticizing his life uh, back, in, back in Africa, but he is trying to paint a picture for how different it will be when he ends up in Virginia. He ends up on a boat. As, as many do. And what we find out here is when he arrives at one of the, uh, the trade forts, he says, the first object that saluted my eyes when I arrived on the coast was the sea and a slave ship, which was then riding at anchor and waiting for its cargo. These filled me with astonishment that was soon con- converted into terror, which I am yet at a loss to describe, and much more the then feelings of my mind when I was carried on board. I was immediately handled and tossed up to see if I was sound by some of the crew, and I was now persuaded that I had gotten to a world of bad spirits, and that they were going to kill me. Their complexions, too, differing so much from ours, their long hair and their language they spoke, which was very different from uh, any I had ever heard, united to confirm me in this belief. Indeed, such were the horrors of my views and fears at that moment, that if 10,000 worlds had been my own, I would have freely parted with them all to have exchanged my condition with the meanest slave in my own country. When I looked round the shri- ship too, I saw a large furnace or copper boiling, and a multitude of black people of every description, chained together, every one of their countenance, countenances expressed in dejection and sorrow. I no longer doubted of my fate, and quite overpowered with horror and anguish, I fell motionless on the deck. Whew. What do you think of that? Powerful. I mean, the first when he's taken to the, he sees the boat, then he's mm-hmm. on the boat, and terror, fear. Like, what do you, I mean, like, yeah, I mean this is vivid. 
it already is beginning a process of subjugation and dehumanization. Just being in the presence of people that he has never seen before, languages that he has never spoken before, it's just eliminating his humanity. Well, and that already. language is super interesting too. This is one of the things we kind of forgot to talk about earlier is this idea that let me be blunt. Like one of the misconceptions uh, among the common people, probably not people listening to this podcast. We, our listeners are educated, but really one of the common things is like Africa is one country and it's all the same. And I, I hate that so much. I mean, you ask people, the man on the street quizzes by like Jimmy Kimmel, Kimmel, Africa is a country. No, it is a continent. It is a continent that is massive. It is loaded with a multitude of various language groups, diversity, different forms of social organization, patriarchy, matrilineal societies, uh, people of different values, different spiritual beliefs. It is an amalgamation as a continent of diversity, a beautiful diversity. And the fact that we here in the West, basically just like everything else, to try and simplify everything, to justify our exploitation, mash it all together. Africa. Africa. There are not, again, kingdoms of Mali and Ghana, and there are not, of course, greater Zimbabwe kingdoms and eventually the Zulu nation and, and the Khoisan and the Maasai, and we can do this all day. We have just made it all Africa. Not Bantu speakers and Swahili speakers and, and, and Mandiki speakers. It is all just Africa. And the reason we do that to this very freaking day is that is, it is. It's a rationalization process. We oversimplify so that we can categorize and dismiss. At least it, it was before it was categorize and oppress. Now it is categorize and dismiss. Mm -hmm. What do you think of that? Yeah, 100% agree. The reason I'm bringing it up here is because, as Nick po pointed out, it's not just the Europeans that speak different languages. He will then be placed into this quote-unquote cargo hold with a whole bunch of different people of different various backgrounds. Again, either tribal or national or kingdom-based backgrounds, and some of them don't even speak the same language. So this is actually kind of scary. Anyway, he does begin to communicate with some of them. He says, I asked them if we were not to be eaten by those white men with horrible looks, red faces, and long hairs. I already kind of referenced it, but why did he think they might be eaten? I mean, it's clear. They keep coming back for more and more and more. And the way these men presented themselves, basically, again, he calls them cargo. He calls himself cargo, right, real briefly here. Just like you would be seeing placed on a ship. Okay. He says, soon after this, blacks who were brought, uh, soon after this, the blacks who brought me on board went off and left me abandoned to despair. I want to pause for just a second before I continue on this passage. It is other Africans that bring him on board. And then he's not describing which, which group this is. So he just says black. So I can't, I can't tell our listeners what, what rivals were involved here, but why would oftentimes in during the trans transatlantic slave trade and later on in the plantations, Europeans or eventually Americans would use different levels of status for different people to oppress their own? Why do you think they would do that? I mean, it seems kind of like obvious, but I, I want you as the sociologist yeah. to kind of reflect on this. It's super common strategy to create hierarchy within subjugated classes. We even see this in uh, colonialism, right? Oftentimes... I mean, the United States still does this today, right? We put a dictator, a local dictator in place that we can control, but that they are controlling their own people. Uh, it basically lets them off the hook. So here, like the white slave traders don't have to do the quote unquote dirty work. They have someone else that's the same race or tribe or whatever category we're talking about here specifically um, doing that work. So they don't even have to do that. And it basically it prevents uprising. It's a strategy to keep people subjugated and oppressed. And they'll direct that anger at the immediate oppressor, not the larger oppressor above. Yep. Um, Equiano goes on to say, I now saw myself deprived of all chance of returning to my native country or even the least glimpse of gaining the shore, which I now considered as friendly. And I even wished for my former slavery and preference to my per present situation, which was filled with horrors of every kind, still heightened by my ignorance of what I was to undergo. I need to stop right here. This is a primary source basically exclaiming, explaining the former servitude he had in Africa was exponentially better than the horrors he was going to experience or already experiencing. Yeah, he's not even there yet. He's not even there yet. And he already wishes he was experiencing his servitude back in under this, this rival group in Africa. 
I was not long suffered to indulge my grief. I was soon put down under the decks, and there I received such a salutation in my uh, salutation in my nostrils as I had never experienced in my life. So that with the loathsome of loath loathsomeness of the stench, and with my crying together, I became so sick and low that I was not able to eat, nor had I the least desire to taste anything. I now wished for the last friend, death, to relieve me. But soon to my grief, two of the white men offered me edibles. And on my refusing to eat, one of them held me fast by the hands and laid me across. I think the windlass and tied my feet while the other flogged me severely. I'd never experienced anything of this kind before. And although not being used to the water, I naturally feared that element the first time I saw it. Yet nevertheless, could I have got, uh, could I have got over the nettings? I would have jumped over the side, but I could not. It goes on. But basically what we find here is that the situation is so dire and so disgusting in the cargo hold that he can't even bring himself to eat. So they basically whip him for not eating. He is flogged for not eating because they want him. Their goal is to sell him. And so they need him in some sort of shape. I mean, Jesus. Goes on, he says, but still I feared I should be put to death. The white people looked and acted, as I thought, in so savage a manner. For I had never seen among any people such instances of brutal cruelty. And this is not only shown towards us blacks, but also to some of the whites themselves. He is even noting that they are assholes to themselves to likely lower people on the socioeconomic hierarchy. He's already noting this. Mm -hmm. One white man in particular I saw when he was permitted to be on deck flogged so unmercifully with a large rope near the foremast that he died in consequence of it, and they tossed him over the side as they would have done a brute. This made me fear these people the more, and I expected nothing less than to be treated in the same manner. Again, from a somebody that has never experienced a culture, and that tells you everything you need to know about what West African society looked like before the Europeans showed up. They had never experienced brutalities like this and could not even relate to this, this example of white-on-white -white atrocity. Which means the indentured servitude that was taking place before the Europeans showed up on Africa is not remotely, remotely close to what would uh, these individuals would have to endure uh, by the Europeans and eventually again the Americans. I mean, this is all the evidence we need. As we go on further, we find out that, again, it, it, the, the journey continues. Um, he eventually finds that, uh, well, I guess I could go further here into like basically his his nearing of the coast. He says, One day when we had a smooth sea and moderate wind, two of my wearied countrymen who were chained together, I was near them at the time, preferring death to such life of misery, somehow made through the nettings and jumped into the sea. I like this example because it's not just Equiano here that's experiencing this. The, the journey is so bad that people are willingly throwing themselves into the ocean. It's, mass suicide is taking place. They would rather kill themselves than deal with the conditions of this journey. Mm. On the passage, we were better treated than when uh, coming from Africa, and we had plenty of rice and fat pork. I didn't contextualize that quote. Sorry, this is after they had already made it to likely the Caribbean. We then see another journey, and they were treated better on the second journey, um, which I suppose is interesting, um, but I would have to assume that's because they're going to get right to work. Once he arrives, he says, while I was in this plantation, again, this is Virginia, the gentleman to whom I suppose the estate belonged, being unwell, I was one day sent to uh, sent for to his dwelling house to fan him. When I came into the room where he was, I saw very much affrighted, I, very much affrighted at some things I saw, and the more so as I had seen a black woman slave as I came through the house who was cooking the dinner. And the poor creature was cruelly loaded with various kinds of iron machines. She had one particularly on her head, which locked her mouth so fast that she could carry scarcely speak and could not eat or drink i'm much astonished and shocked at this contrivance which i afterward learned was called the iron muzzle holy shit the iron muzzle this is for one of the slaves serving in the house mm -hmm. what do you think of that it's like a horror movie i mean seriously so no longer are we blaming the portuguese or the spaniards here this is virginia this is the iron muzzle. We have the audacity here, again, and I use that word all the time, to call out all of the other uh, 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 countries or nations or kingdoms for their past atrocities and experimentation on humans, but we have yet to reconcile with our past here. These are Virginians. These are eventually what we'd be, what we'd be call Americans, subjecting human beings to muzzles, iron muzzles, and forced servitude. I just let that sink in for a second. 
I like how he kind of closes out this passage. Again, this is such a, a wonderful work. I, I did not, I do not have the opportunity to read it, but again, explore on your own if you're listening to this podcast. I mean, it's so much detail into this man's life. He finds out that there is a changing in identity, and I think that's like what I want to emphasize. And he cl- and he closes with this interesting quote. He says, "In this place, I was called Jacob." But on board the African snow, I was called Michael. And back in his home, he was called something else. And back in his other home, he was called something. The consistent changing of identity here. This is erasure of basically individuality mm-hmm. and reshaping individuals to be subservient. And using these specific words, tie back to what we learned in Albert, the biblical teachings that rationalize this. Michael, Jacob, those are quote unquote Christian names. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, they're intentionally being given new identities. And like you said, each step along the way, being oppressed and erased more and more and more, being detached from their history and their previous lives every time they're given a new name and a new location and a new master and so on. Phyllis Wheatley uh, wrote well after. She wrote, she was an amazing poet. She wrote in the 1770s in Boston, and she wrote numerous works. I'm only going to focus on one here, this stanza. It is from the work On Being Brought from Africa to America. It's an amazing poem that kind of closes out this little thing, this little section of the podcast for us on on specifically the transatlantic passage. She says, "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land." Taught my, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a Savior too. Once I redemption neither sought nor knew. Some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolical dye. Remember, Christians, Negroes black as cane may be refined and joined the angelic train. That's pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. And we can see like so much, like again, that's just a poem in this case, but so much packed in there. Yeah. Um, I'm going to let our listeners just sit on that and, and come to their own analytical uh, conclusions regarding that poem. But that's that's a mic drop to this part of, of our episode today. Okay, so we decided to cut that episode off there, and we'll continue our discussion of the slave trade in a second episode where we'll dive into racist ideology and the uh, mental gymnastics required for people to commit such acts against other human beings. But that does it for this episode of the Revolution and Ideology podcast and our Myth is America series. You can find us online at revolutionandideology.com, on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel where we post uh, all of our episodes and other videos that uh, have to do with this kind of content. Uh, The title of that is just Revolution and Ideology. Be sure to subscribe there. You can find the podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts or any other podcast app. Uh, Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you uh, in the next episode.